And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys had a great weekend. Uh, big show today. Great show today. A lot to get to. I was joined by Jim Garrity from National Review uh, and the Three Martini Lunch Podcast. It's always a great time talking to Jim. Uh, obviously, we talked about the big news of the week, the death of ISIS leader al-Baghdadi um, and the press reaction and uh, all the craziness of the weekend. Uh, yeah, a lot to get to. But before I get to Jim... Guys, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. If you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate it. And if you like what you're hearing and want to get involved, hit us up over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. You can contribute monthly over there, and there's cool incentives if you choose to do so. All right, without further ado, here is my chat with Jim Garrity. All right, guys, we're here with National Review, senior political correspondent, host of the Three Martini Lunch podcast, and author of the brand new book, Between Two Scorpions, Mr. Jim Garrity. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Brady, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. It's always great. It's always a good time talking to you. So obviously, uh, let's just jump right into it. The big news of the weekend, ISIS founder Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, well, wow, terrible start to the podcast, <laughs> was killed... He's dead. You don't need to know how he's to dead anymore. Killed in a raid by U.S. Special Forces in northern Syria. Jim, the most wanted man on earth is dead. It's a good day. It is a very good day. Um, and I, I wrote about this morning. I was thinking about what, Brady. You know, you and I are, are not terribly different in our, our ages. And, and, you know, we all we lived through 9-11. Um, we saw the, the, you know, raid on bin Laden in 2011 that made you say, OK, there's there's the bookend of that. And then around 2013, 2014, 2015, we started seeing this rise of ISIS. And while perhaps no terror group was going to make Americans feel as frightened as we did on September 12th, 2001, waking up in this completely different world, things were really bad with ISIS. Um, you know, right. Probably almost every major European city had a, a terror attack of one kind or another. We had the San Bernardino attacks. We had the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. Um, and in addition to everything else, the Islamic State did what every Islamist terror group had wanted to do for a long time. They said, hey, we have restarted the caliphate. This is our land. We now rule according to our interpretation of Islamic law. And our long term goal is to conquer the world. All of you will eventually kneel before us. Right. This is, you know, pure, you know, supervillain kind of stuff we're used to seeing. And there was a while there where ISIS was really frightening, um, where we, you know, uh, not just the beheading videos and stuff like that, but they had a real ability to inspire uh, troubled people in these in this country to decide to to launch their own attacks. These lone wolves we talked about. Um, eventually, we got on the stick. I think you could argue that U.S. policymakers were a little slow in responding to the rise of ISIS. Uh, we, we started our bombing campaign. The Syrian Democratic Forces fought in Syria. The Iraqi army fought in Iraq, and bit by bit, we started you know taking back the territory. Uh, Locked up a whole lot of them in Syria until recently, apparently. And uh, we are, you know, but, but they're all, I, all Baghdadi, who had never loomed in our consciousness quite as 
large as Bin Laden. Um, he was still out there. And this is this little cherry on top of signifying, look, is ISIS ever going to be completely gone? Probably not in our lifetimes, but they are a sh shadow of their former selves. And this is just the cherry on top of indicating their days are over. Uh, Islamist terror may still exist in this world, but it is, you know, they are pretty much as, as pretty thoroughly crushed, um, at least for now, I guess. Right, right, and and you wrote you wrote about this in the morning, Joel, today too. But you know, and you touched on it just now that ISIS isn't completely gone. Obviously, who knows how long it, it'll it'll take to wipe all of them out. But this is a major, major win, and we should talk a little bit about that too. Um, you know, ISIS doesn't really have an heir apparent the way, say, Al Qaeda always does, and uh, Baghdadi was the driving force behind the rise of ISIS. He was very influential. He kind of took it from a ragtag group, you know, an offshoot of Al Qaeda and other terrorist organizations and turned it, like you said, into a caliphate that controlled hundreds of square miles. Um, and he was kind of the driving force behind all of that. So maybe talk us through how important he was to the rise of ISIS and how big of a deal this really is. Because I don't know if a lot of people, you know, he isn't as, as in our consciousness the same way. Bin Laden was obviously, but he was very important. This was a, a major win, definitely the biggest military victory we've had since we took out Bin Laden. Yeah, and I kind of want to flash back to that 2011 uh, moment. Obviously, you saw people cheering outside the White House. It was it was almost a downright euphoric moment uh, oh, yeah. for all of us who you know been through you know lived through 9/11 and just kind of learned to live with this fear that there was some guy out there who wanted to hit us again. And as hard, if not harder, and you know, despite having probably the best military in the world, a fantastic intelligence community, uh, all the satellites, all the resources we have, you know, somehow this guy had managed to evade us. And as long as he was out there, you knew he was periodically going to issue these videotapes and audio tapes and say, "Go out and strike the Americans and stuff." And we heard what, from back, back to May 2011, a lot of what we're hearing this morning and, and on Sunday. Well, the death of the leader does not mean the entire organization goes away. Correct. That, that's true. But on the other hand, I would ask people, how much have you heard about Al-Qaeda since Osama bin Laden was killed? Not that much. Certainly certainly not that much in the years since compared to the decade beforehand. Right. Um, and, you know, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was the number two guy, the Egyptian doctor, um, he's still alive. We believe he's somewhere in Pakistan. Every now and then he pops up and issues some new audio tape or videotape. But what's kind of fascinating is how much... Uh, Ayman al-Sobahiri these days sounds a bit like a grumpy old man of terrorism. Uh, he complains that young pe the young pe the, the, the some people are turning back and turning away from it. Uh, he's berating people for not launching attacks. And his last right. one, at least that I was able to find, came around the 9-11 anniversary earlier this year. And he called for more attacks on Americans. And they certainly didn't have any in the, uh, domestically in the United States. And if there were any, if there were any significant ones overseas, it escaped our attention. Um, Al-Qaeda, again, the, is there Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is still a serious group. They're still out there, factions, cells. Look, you know, Al-Qaeda's not gone, but I think it's very revealing. We don't think about Al-Qaeda very much. And I think you can say that, I, I, I went up, it's the last major attack that Al-Qaeda launched on foreign soil was the Charlie Hebdo attack. And that was in 2013. So things wow. were, right, I mean, like, they, they're just not the force in uh, the lives of, of Western citizens that they used to be. In, in you know, part, partially because they were supplanted by ISIS. But my suspicion, you know, based on the experience with Al-Qaeda, the outlook for us against ISIS is pretty good. This, you know, it, Leaders are not easily replaced. 
placed. It's one guy is not necessarily as charismatic as the other. Um, I think the moment I feel like I got the best understanding of ISIS and who they were and what they wanted and how they differed from Al Qaeda. Uh, Graham Wood wrote this great piece in The Atlantic back in 2014. And it's really fascinating to look at it from the perspective of today. He had spoken to a lot of captured members of ISIS. They let him into the prisons. They let him talk to these guys. They're propagandists who had not been under, had not been wrapped up yet. And he just tried to paint a portrait of who they are and what, what do they want and what motivates them. And there was a little bit of this difference. It's interesting. Apparently, Bin Laden thought that forming a caliphate uh, was not a particularly wise course of action. Because once you do that, you create a target, and eventually the enemies of Islam, i.e. us, uh, or at least the enemies of Islamism, us, uh, would go out and eventually attack them. And, and in a direct fight, sooner or later, we would defeat them. Um, and the folks who were from ISIS, who, by the way, a lot of them came from al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, the old group that was run by uh, Zarqawi, um, Zarqawi for perspective, was the, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq for many years, taken out by a uh, bomb from, from dropped from a U.S. plane. Um, Zarqawi, you listen to people who study these kinds of issues in terrorism. Basically, he's a serial killer who just happened to fall into terrorism, is the way they characterize him. That he was not a tremendously pious or religious person. One of the things I think that makes Islamism attractive to seriously maladjusted people, much like other extremist ideologies, is it says to them, hey, you know that urge to kill that you have such a hard time repressing? You know that urge for violence and rape and all these terrible things that other people are telling you are wrong? We're telling telling you you can do this in the name of a good cause. Once you join us, all those terrible things you do, they're justified. They're right. serving the greater good. Um, and this is very much what attracted Zarqawi to this. ISIS gets formed, um, and ISIS believes, no, no, we can form the caliphate. We can form uh, a, our own territory, establish our own government, establish Islamic rule the way we want. And this is what makes us different, because obviously the world has a whole bunch of Islamist uh, terror groups around the world that are you know, fighting their various uh, insurgencies and trying to blow stuff up. This is what's going to make us special. This is what's going to show we are the real successors to true Islam. And everybody else is a pretender to the throne. And by, you know, again, by recognizing between the Syrian civil war and the problems of post-U.S. occupation Iraq, this you know, border area, there is a whole bunch of territory and not a heck of a lot of strong government forces willing to, you know, willing to uh, put down an insurgency. So ISIS managed, you know, is, you know they kept calling it, is ISIL, uh, Islamic State of, of uh, Iraq and the Levant, uh, which you know, is a, a different term for Syria. Uh, some of us strongly suspect ISIS caught on much more. Uh, some of us strongly suspected the Obama administration preferred the term ISIL because it didn't use the word Syria because people were asking for much of Obama's second term. Hey, what the heck are we doing in Syria? Things look really bad there. And right. uh, But, you know, we, we have a bit by bit uh, with a lot of help from our allies who may or may not be our allies for that much longer. Right. Um, we've, we've, uh, we did manage to take what was a really just, you, again, you go down the list of all those places, you know, the, the churches in Normandy, um, the Paris theaters, the, the metros in Brussels, um, you know, ISIS killed a lot of people in a lot of different places. Yeah. The truck um, attack in, uh, in Nice too. Yeah. That was, whew. Yeah. And it was, you know, they, they, these were big, high profile, high gatherings. Now, I don't know how much people stayed home and didn't do that. But one, the other thing I noticed, which I think is perhaps not as uh, uh, appreciated as much, Al-Qaeda, for whatever reason, was obsessed with airlines and big landmarks. World right. Trade Center, uh, Pentagon, 
Um, their original plot way back when was to do uh, 11 hijackings and, and explosions of 11 diff different planes. For some reason, that's, they saw that as the venue that was most uh, fruitful for their, for their efforts. It, ISIS, for whatever it seemed to recognize, look, you, you can avoid skyscrapers, right? You can avoid getting on planes. When it's, you know, the nearest commuter rail station or just a nightclub or, you know, any public place could be a site for a terror attack. I, I think that's much more frightening. And again, you know, it's not like to say, oh, you're going to hear people arguing ISIS is more threatening than Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda was more. Look, they're both bad guys. I don't think there's a there's a huge difference in that. But I do think the nature of the threat um, maybe made ISIS even a little bit more frightening to the average American because I knew it wasn't just going to be aiming at big, you know, big, big high profile targets in washington and new york yeah yeah definitely and um the the president's address yesterday i thought was uh was, was quite good i could have done without obviously the, the 45 minute impromptu q a session afterwards but mm -hmm. he is who he is we, we all know who president yeah. trump is this, yeah, say, this is the he one time help where himself. he says you know oh, he died like a dog he was groveling he was you know sniveling you know hey you know like what a, Mr. Like a dog. yeah go for it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I I was uh, with the like a dog thing. I, man, this president really hates dogs, by the way. Anything he doesn't like is like a dog, you know. And we had a dog wounded, right? You know, we did. The dog, uh, we, good guys on this this one. So. Yeah, which which by the way, I just saw on on Twitter. I think it was from a Washington Examiner that the dog is uh, recovering and already back to work. So that's uh, you know good news, Brady. That's that's the roll the credits moment, right? Yeah. You know, there's a big <laughs> explosion. But the dog made it, everyone. It's okay. Exactly. Do, do you think President Trump, with the whole, you know, he was a sniveling coward, died like a dog in a tunnel, and I, I, do you think that that was deliberate and trying to hit ISIS, you know, right where it counts in terms of recruitment and, and propaganda, saying, hey, your your glorious leader died crying like a dog in a tunnel and blew up his own children? You know, do, do you think kind of that language was going after what's left of ISIS and, and making it hard on their, their recruitment, on their morale, et cetera? I'd or do you like think it was just Trump so. running his mouth? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to say so. my suspicion, considering the number of times he's described cable news hosts of being <laughs> like a dog, and everybody, everybody's always begging like a dog or, you know, <laughs> sad, you know. Yeah. So my guess is it's probably good. But, you know, by the way, one other kind of interesting little minor comparison in this, um, in some sects of Islam, dogs are seen as unclean creatures. Right. Right. Uh, which, by the way, makes all kinds of complications for when you want to do bomb-sniffing dogs and stuff like that in Muslim countries. Um, but that is, yeah, I remember, was it um, Robert Ferrigno's Path of the Assassin? Uh, he did three novels about a, you know, dis you know not-too-distant kind of frightening future about an Islamicized um, uh, United States of America that had largely converted to an Islamic government. And one of the ways of, one of the quiet forms of resistance was having a dog and having your dog poop on the lawn of uh, <laughs> various devout Muslims. <laughs> So we we got to change gears here in just a second. We got to mm. talk about the press's reaction to all this. But but first, one more one more uh, one more ISIS comment. Uh, yesterday there was actually a secondary attack on another ISIS target where we took out the ISIS spokesman. Mm. And uh, I, I forget the guy's name. I should I should have it in front of me. Uh, you know, be a professional, Brady. But it just gave me a funny mental picture. Like you know the the ISIS equivalent of of Sean Spicer. Getting up there in his cave podium somewhere, surrounded by AK-47s and sex slaves and camels or wherever else. And then, all right, guys, look, I have some bad news. The boss got oh god, you know, it's like this <laughs> yeah, very, 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 very odd. Yeah, 
passing up a boob. Like, ah! <laughs> so, I'm passing to this announcement as well. Yeah, just not a great weekend for ISIS all around. Thank God for that. But, all right, so we got to change gears here and talk about the press. Boy, oh boy, Jim. Um, the the press had a doozy of, of a Sunday. Um, and I had fun. I had fun watching the meltdown. I mean, don't get me wrong. They, they provide mm. constant entertainment for me. But the Washington Post, <laughs> well, let's just start here. The Washington Post issued the following yeah. headline moments after the president announced the killing of al-Baghdadi. Quote, <laughs> Baghdadi, <laughs> austere religious scholar at the helm of the Islamic State, dies at 48. Unquote. Your thoughts, Jim? Yeah. Well, so it's worth noting that apparently this was the second headline. First of all, for those wondering, like, how could they have an obituary ready to go? Uh, particularly at major newspapers, it's very common to have obituaries written for major figures, uh, both at home and abroad, so that when it happens, you the only thing you really need to plug in is the circumstances of the death and maybe one or two paragraphs at the top, and then boom, you're ready to put, you know, ready to post it, ready to run it in the next day's edition. Um, I believe when George H.W. Bush passed away uh, about a little less than a year ago, the the obituary was was co-bylined by Adam Clymer, a uh, New York Times reporter who had written for many years, who had died uh, before, many years earlier. And it was one of those, his, you know, copy had been sitting there in the New York Times database. Even in, you know, after he died, he's still getting some uh, some good, good, good bylines. But so that by itself is not unusual. What is unusual was the headline they chose. And apparently the first headline was something like terrorist in chief or jihadist in chief. and described him pretty accurately austere scholar <laughs> I mean, this set off a ton of twitter parodies first of all austere this is the first time brady i think i've seen the term austere uh associated with a, a gang rapist uh yeah. a serial rapist yeah. who, you know like, so that that's issue number one secondly like do the post know what austere means like you know i, I don't think so like when they denounce fiscal austerity well, now I understand. If you think it's if you think it's like a Baghdadi, okay, then yes, I can understand why you guys would oppose it. But it's not. It just means not spending as much. Um, the, the scholar, all these guys say that they're scholars of of studying the the Quran and, and all that stuff. I don't really think that's a uh, uh, that that's the most defining attribute of him. Um, so it was it was strange to see this. It was up for a while. Everybody's screen grabbing it. Um, what? Well, okay, well, here's the thing. People make mistakes. If it had been some, you know, low-level intern who, who, you know, was only barely familiar with all this, it is worth noting that both the obituary itself and various other articles, including Bloomberg, really did take the tone of almost a VH1 behind the music tone. Oh, yeah. You know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was a little guy with a big dream that would eventually change the world, you know. Um, the Bloomberg like headline was... Dog. The Bloomberg yeah. headline was even yeah. worse. Yeah, the the Bloomberg was like, yeah, this underdog that pulled himself up by his bootstraps to a establish a Muslim caliphate. Yeah, it's like, yeah, so, it's so easy to get this one right, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> like this uh, is we're talking about ISIS, literally ISIS. I mean, how hard is this? This is not hard, guys. I, I'm looking to I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble, the business section, and say leadership lessons of Abu Abu Al Bakar Baghdadi. Um, yeah, and, and what it Gets to their 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 weird thoughts there. Like one is like, did, did the Washington Post when it had that first headline, do they believe that they have some sort of pro ISIS segment of their readership that they did not want to alienate? Um, they didn't want to <laughs> that somehow this idea that oh this will offend Muslims or something like that if we call the world's most notorious terrorist the world 
world's most notorious terrorist, you know. Um, was it just some sort of, as I said, ignorance, fundamental understanding of who this guy was and what he stood for? I mean, if so, you probably should work in news and or you should try picking up the newspaper that you work for to, to be a little more familiar with it. Um, really kind of baffling. And then, of course, the Washington Post managed to take a bad situation worse by putting out some sort of subsequent tweet that said it should not have read that way. No. But what a spectacular example of the, pa of the passive voice. No, it should not have been written that way. Right? It just, this is not the immaculate headline that just seemed to happen. It came out of nowhere, you know, manifested out of thin air on the Washington Post website. It, you know, somebody wrote that way. And the only two possibilities are ignorance or some sort of like malevolent sense that no, his, his loss, he really was a renowned scholar that, uh, you know, is some sort of bizarre role model or something like that. So um, I think my favorite, they stepped in it deep. I, I think my favorite tweet um, from from yesterday was from Molly Hemingway over at the Federalist last night, and uh, I actually screenshotted it because it made me laugh so hard. But uh, she said, <laughs> "said quote If you pay extremely close attention, you can detect the slightest of differences in media handling of Bin Laden operation and the Baghdadi operation. Very subtle. Yeah. But if you really analyze it, you can pick a few things out. <laughs> it's like, guys, I is it? Does this all come down to the?" the Trump derangement syndrome inside the beltway. I mean, is it just, they, they just hate this president so much that they just can't, they, just everything, everything Trump does just clouds their mind. They can't, they can't, they can't just celebrate the leader of ISIS being killed by the greatest military on the planet. They can't, they can't so. let Trump and, have uh, a win. Well, I'm sure you can find examples of uh, folks on the right who might've been grumbling about, uh, the Bin Laden kill. Well, you know, I, I, I'm never happier with President Obama than, you know, that time. Uh, it did take guts to launch that uh, operation. Um, there, you know, there's actually, if you ever go to the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., they have a really fascinating display uh, with a video of Michael Morell where he walks through, it's kind of, it's kind of an interactive um, uh, exhibit, and you get the information based on, that they can determine. And based on that data, you try to pick out who you think, what, what the evidence points to, what kind of person would be in that compound. Now, obviously, <laughs> we're, we're doing this from the perspective of 2019. So we know Bin Laden's in that compound. But you can see that there were evidence. It could have been some other leader. It could have been some sort of criminal. It could have been some sort of businessman who wanted privacy. You know, there was not 100% certainty. There was that possibility you were going to send, you know, the, the Navy SEALs into there and you'd end up raiding you know, some little known businessman who just wanted to have a private uh, time there. And, you, you know, this could have gone terribly wrong, could have had major U.S. casualties. And that would have been, you know, taken the uh, uh, that would have been a, a frustrating turn of events. As, Absolutely. As it, it was the right call. Good for you, Mr. President. You don't have, you know, and, and those of us who did not like President Obama or disagreed a great deal with the President Obama, we don't have to oppose every legal decision he makes or even the big decisions he makes. We can give him a little bit of credit. And that is entirely accurate. Absent from so many people, not just on the left, which is, I suppose, somewhat understandable, uh, but people whose job is to report the news and who aren't supposed to be taking sides. They keep assuring us that they don't. They keep taking sides. And I think that, look, that, that there are enough people in this country who were, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, traumatized by the election of Trump, that they have reorganized the way they see the world as their preeminent mission in life is to either get him out of office through impeachment or to ensure he's not reelected to a second term um and this this permeates every decision they make 
Uh, and it's it's not good for the country. It's not good for the institution of journalism. And it's, you know, it makes reading the news a lot of days really exasperating. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And one more point on, on the, you know, you mentioned Obama's decision to, to take up bin Laden. And, and both President Obama and President Trump, over the weekend, to their credit, I mean, they, they had multiple options. Obviously, stand down is an option, but they could have just launched an airstrike, but they, they had the balls and the courage to send in the special forces uh, because they realized how important it was to get a quick ID and make sure we actually got our man. And, you know, that's not an easy decision. When you have drones, you have the Air Force up there, you can just take out the entire compound with a missile, or you can actually put our boys in harm's way on the ground. And they both that's a tough call. I mean, that's not a decision yeah. I would want to make. I, I do but not want, want to get you want to get evidence. You want to get yeah. You want to get DNA yeah. evidence. To make sure you got the right guy. Um, and there's a, there was an argument about the way the Obama administration used drone strikes that uh, he had seen the political controversy that uh, Guantanamo Bay had become a political controversy that he had very much fanned the flames of. And so the question, right. well, what if you if you drone strike these guys, you don't capture them, you don't have any issue. What do you do with them? Uh, do you ever put them on trial or something like that? Now, on the one hand, Brady, I don't know about you. I love seeing terrorists drone strike. That I could just just scroll <laughs> up a video of that and give me a big bowl of popcorn and I'll watch the drone strike footage all day long. I, I don't mind that. However, when you drone strike a guy, you probably don't get nearly as much intelligence as you do from capturing him and, and being able to interrogate him you probably if he's got any papers if he's got a cell phone if he's got a laptop all that, all that stuff's probably going to burn up pretty bad in the resulting explosion um so when it you know the idea was that the obama administration had figured out a way to eliminate targets but did so in a way that made it tougher to strike other targets in the future um and you know some people uh, were, were frustrated by that um you know and again you look at the overall picture we've done an amazing job against both al-qaeda and isis in the country in a safer space, at least until the mass shooters and domestic terrorists come. Right. Well, one more note on the press. It, it wasn't just the Washington Post and Bloomberg, and you know the, the frequent flyers that that, uh, that yeah. I that I make fun of a lot. The of usual the suspects. Yeah. The usual suspects. But it was there was a lot of people stepping in it. it. It was a weird exchange between Chris Wallace over on Fox and Vice President Pence. When Chris Wallace, who I I think is usually a pretty honest guy, I mean he he you know, tries his best to be objective, I, I think, at least grading on a curve, <laughs> you know, compared to most people in, in the national press. But he was badgering Pence like a child. Like he, he was just whining at Mike Pence, asking him over and over why the White House didn't tell Nancy Pelosi in advance that, that this raid was happening. I don't know, Chris Wallace, maybe because they didn't want it announced on CNN beforehand and, and, put, <laughs> and put our armed forces in harm's way. I mean, and by the way, Pence and Trump both outrank Nancy Pelosi. I don't know when the Speaker of the House became the Commander in Chief of the military, so it seems like an odd line yeah. of questioning there. But it's like I don't know what the hell Chris Wallace was thinking, badgering the Vice President like this. I would have done the exact same thing if I were Trump. I mean, I you really want Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and these guys getting this classified information? I mean, they, I, do you really want it in the New York Times front page a day before it happens? Absolutely not. And hey, look, maybe. The natural pressures of our era are, are destined to have a difficult relationship between the Speaker of the House and the President when they're of different parties. And yeah, this isn't um, Tip O'Neill. This is not Tip O'Neill and Robert right. Yeah. So this has been building for a long time. Bush and Pelosi, Boehner and Obama. Um, this, this is you know I don't want to say I want to argue the uh, Ryan and Obama. You know I don't want to say this is the natural order of things, but like this is this is you know this didn't happen overnight. When you have 
such an overtly hostile relationship. And we saw the, you know, the you know photos in which you know Trump apparently stormed out of a meeting with them. Pelosi stormed out of a meeting with her. We had the infamous picture of you know Pelosi wagging her finger at Trump. You know, look, this is the, the while we're used to having the concept of the loyal opposition has <laughs> really eroded in this. And I think it was a uh, Charles Krauthammer column where he talked about that. That's at the core of American life: the idea that you can oppose your current leader, but in the end, you are still loyal to the country. Um, and this fear that we are being just have this all-consuming opposition. Would Nancy Pelosi have leaked that information and, and risked the operation? I'd like to think she wouldn't. I, I don't think she would, but you can't say that with 100% certainty, nor can you expect, like, they're trying to impeach the president. <laughs> you know, right. Of course he's not going to be inclined to share any more information than he's absolutely required to. And if he is not, you know, now the question is, can the, you know, does, is he required to by law? The, you know, the short answer is it depends. If he believes that due to you know, security of the mission, he can, you know, say so up to 180 days afterwards. He can say to Congress, hey, oh, by the way, we uh, we killed Baghdadi. Uh, I authorized a mission. I didn't tell you. Here's my reasons for not telling you. And that's all he has to do under the law. Um, now, again, if you if you want to have a better relationship with the White House, you, you just can't have it. You, you can't ex- you can't expect the president to do more than he's obligated to do while there's an ongoing impeachment. Right. I mean, Pelosi spent, you know, her entire the last three years, and especially since winning back the House last year, just solely focused on removing Trump from power. I mean, it's the the House has kind of advocated advocated their responsibilities. There's things like uh, what's it called? The the trade deal with with Canada and Mexico that Trump negotiated, the NAFTA 2.0 that's been sitting there for a year and a half or whatever. They won't even vote on it. It's like the, the House is kind of they're not even a functioning body at this point. They're solely focused on getting Trump. I, I give Trump a complete pass on that one. I, I would have done the same thing in, in his shoes. Yeah. One, one more point. Yeah. I, I, want, I want to touch on the Katie Hill thing before I let you go, but one, one more point on on Trump and the, the whole weekend that we've we've watched un, unfold. He went to Game 5 of the World Series in D.C. last night and was booed very loudly by the, the Nats fans there, obviously. Um, man, I think... <laughs> look, I think everybody in the country is rooting for the Astros, um, unless you live in Washington, D.C., um, and I know a lot of friends in Washington, D.C. that don't like the city very much and are also rooting for the Astros. So I think this is actually great press for President Trump um, watching <laughs> watching the swamp boo him uh, at a baseball game uh, is look is a pretty good look for his reelection campaign, actually, I think. Yeah, again, I, again, you know, come November 2020, I don't think anybody's going to be thinking too much about no, of course, if, uh, of if course. Trump wants to. And to I argue, see the swamp eats me. Yeah. Now, by the way, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I am a soft Nationals fan. Um, probably go to about one game a year. I didn't go to a game this year naturally, which is probably why they're doing so well. Um, but uh, you know, the people who go to Nationals games, like, are they all lobbyists and lawyers and, and all that stuff? Well, no, not all. <laughs> are they way disproportional in the Nationals <laughs> fan base? Well, yes. In fact, in fact, if, again, I, I don't know if people nationally are getting the same ads, but if you watch the ads for the, if you watch the World Series here in the D.C. area, uh, and I live in Northern Virginia, um, you get ads for Northrop Grumman, you know, and I've always loved those ads, Brady, because it's always like, you know, I've been meaning to buy a new strike fighter. <laughs> right. <laughs> I should look at the new models. I hear they're really good these days. Right. They're really targeting those uh, farmers in, in Iowa with the Northrop Grumman ads. Yeah. Amazing. So one more thing before I let you go, Jim, uh, this is a story I don't think I've even mentioned on the podcast yet. It just hasn't really been on my radar too much. But Katie Hill, the uh, the California congresswoman, freshman congresswoman, who was caught having sex with a college-age campaign staffer, which is in violation of House uh, ethics rules, has resigned. Uh, 
um, as of last night. And right on cue, obviously, our friends in the press are running interference for her, and, and Hill is blaming her now ex-husband, I suppose, and is basically claiming victimhood throughout the whole thing. Somehow, it doesn't really make any mm-hmm. sense to me. But yeah, your, your thoughts on the whole Katie Hill fiasco, it's not really a story I've cared at all about. I don't really care about an obscure California congresswoman. It's just not something I have time for. But the, the only thing that I've thought through this entire fiasco is that, wow, what if Hill were a Republican? <laughs> the press would resemble... Hiroshima circa 1945. <laughs> I mean, it would be yeah. an atomic meltdown. I guess that's kind of my only reaction to the whole thing. What yeah, I, there was a Los Angeles Times column this morning that irked me a bit because it basically tried to make the argument that she was a martyr of revenge porn and that the only oh reason goodness. she was being forced to do this is because she will and because she's bisexual. Um, now let's make a couple of clarifications. First of all, this was done uh, because, because everyone seems to be skipping who broke this story. It was Jennifer Von Lahr over at Red State... Uh, are they .com or .org these days? Over at Red State, Google. You'll yeah, find over at Red State. There you go. Um, and the, the original article by Jennifer did not put in all the photos you may have seen in other places. Um, they blurred out the very young, although over 18, campaign staffer who had apparently been in the – I cannot cringe enough as I say this term – thruple. By the way, I don't, you shouldn't just make up words. Yeah. right? You know, no. she, was, she was in a relationship with both the husband and the wife life uh of these campaign staffers now i believe it's always not always ends well always ends well these these struggles it's <laughs> well, just a go great wrong. idea yeah um but so it's worth knowing it is not a violation of house rules to have a relationship with a campaign staffer it is a violation of house rules to have a camp a relationship with a congressional staffer a lot of folks might say well look if you're doing one how much different is it to the other but here's the thing the original story up by von lar in, in um uh in red state is that look we know there was this this thruple thing going on during the campaign. It ended. It appears it ended, and then Congresswoman Hill uh, started a new relationship with a congressional staffer, and this is what explicitly breaks uh, uh, the rules of the House. And so the House Ethics Committee. By the way, there were screenshots of texts and other information that uh, you know Hill denied the allegation. If if it's not true, this is an extraordinary hoax of people you know, faking text messages and all that kind of stuff. The House Ethics Committee had no choice but to investigate. There, there was sufficient evidence. You've got to at least take a look at this. And after they made that announcement, 24 hours later, Hill uh, announces her resignation. Does this prove that she was having an affair with a congressional staffer? I don't know if you can say it's definitive proof, but it certainly suggests she did not want the House Ethics Committee looking at that. Um, by and large, I, I have this attitude of, you know, who you choose to sleep with is your business. Having said that, one once it happens in the workplace between a superior and an employee, it becomes a much more complicated situation because besides people ask, can you, you know, really consent to a sexual relationship with someone who signs your paycheck? Um, it also creates all kinds of issues for everyone else. If, you know, the boss says, hey, would you mind switching with so-and-so? She wants to, she wants the day off. Do you feel comfortable telling your boss no, knowing that this is the boss's girlfriend and that maybe she wants to run off to canoodle or something? Um, affairs in the workplace, particularly between bosses and subordinates, make life more complicated for everyone and tend to end up with wrongful termination lawsuits. This is why it's against house rules. Uh, you know, I'm sure Katie Hill feels like this was a unbelievably unjust turn of events, but when you choose to start a relationship with a staffer and you don't try to take some sort of steps of like, look, I want to see you in this way. You're going to have to go work for another member of Congress or, you know, some committee or something like that. Um, this, this is the inevitable consequence. She, you know, 
she made her bed and now she has to sleep in it. And I'll just try not to picture the other connotations of that phrase. <laughs> try not to picture the thruple. Yeah, where, where I come from, uh, the term is you don't crap where you eat. Um, and I'd say especially Dip your if you're, if you're, in the Ankeny Company Inkwell. Yes, there are all <laughs> kinds of uh, variations of that. And that generally tends out to be good yeah. advice. I think if, if you're eating also on the taxpayer's dime, it, uh, it makes it a little bit worse <laughs> as well. But all right, Jim, I've already kept you over time. Thanks so much for being generous with your time. And we got to do it again. I always have a good time talking to you. Everybody follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Garrity. Uh, check out the Morning Jolt over at NRO. Um, check out the three martini lunch podcast, which will be out about exactly the same time. This podcast is out actually. So listen to this one and then immediately hop over and listen to the three martini lunch. Uh, that's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Wednesday. No gimmicks. Oh,